it was as though I was functioning from behind a veil. It was like there was this weight that I couldn't quite put my finger on, that I couldn't shake. And it was like I carried it with me everywhere I went. Mm. And no matter how happy a situation was, that veil, that weight was still there. So even in, and this sounds weird, but even in laughter, there was still that overriding sense of loss and sadness. You're listening to It's Real Life Podcast. Real hope. Real love. Real Real life. life. But welcome, welcome, welcome to the It's Real Life podcast. We're so excited that you decided to join us. We're going to be talking about a really, really interesting topic tonight, one that a number of us have experience with. And we're going to kind of take off our armor and uh, and kind of dig in. But I can't go any further without recognizing my illustrious, the wonderful, the glorious Deborah Bell. How you doing, sis? You know what? It has been a trying day, but God is good. And I am excited, (laughs) though tentative, to have the conversation we're about to have. Yeah, I'm with you. The topic we're going to discuss tonight is living through grief. And, you know, grief is a heavy, multifaceted topic. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of uh, take off my armor first and I'm going to kind of unpack a little bit. I had a couple of experiences. I mean, we're dealing with and living through currently unprecedented times. I don't think any of us has seen a pandemic in our lifetime. And the way that things are unfolding is traumatizing and anxiety causing for a number of us. And for so many of us, this pandemic has hit home uh, because we have loved ones who have succumbed to the effects of the virus and its impact um, and passed away. One of the folks that in my life that I wanted to kind of talk about with regard to that was uh, one of my football coaches whose name was uh, Paul Logan. And uh, this guy ended up being kind of uh, the assistant athletic director at my my alma mater, North Central High School. And what's really interesting about this particular story is because, you know, as with a number of these stories, it happened so quickly. We're talking about a number of weeks and from I'm not feeling well, I should probably go to the ER. And in a number of weeks, he was gone. Now, the reason why I bring that up is because there are two major losses that I've experienced in the last probably three years that kind of rocked me and it rocked me in an already sensitive area. And so the first uh, of these two was my stepfather. My mother's husband passed away in 2018. Uh, no, 2017, I'm sorry. And that rocked me because they had been married for almost, what I say, 28, 29, 30 years, something like that. So basically a good chunk of my life, he was there. And so that was the first, you know, no one kind of can prepare you for the loss of a parent. And so that, that rocked me. So Paul Logan's passing here recently was a similar blow because he was kind of like a father figure in high school as a football coach. Most coaches are father figures to their players generally. And so it felt like, a, a, like another gut punch. It was kind of like one of those, I just caught my breath and then 
and gets knocked out again. And so those two were some major, major blows. And it took some time for me to work through it. And, and it's stages, right? And so you and I have actually had a conversation about this, Deborah, in terms of the waves of grief. And I was even looking up the stages of, of, of grief. And I realized that I think I skipped over a bunch of those. <laughs> and because uh, I, I, I wasn't in denial, you know, um, I didn't have any of that going on. I mean, I wasn't, you know, angry. I wasn't bargaining necessarily. May and probably did have some depression. But I think I had kind of jumped all the way to the acceptance part. Just like, okay, accepting it for what it is, you know, relying on my faith just on the superficial levels of understanding it. But the grief part, the emotion part, I didn't even really digest it for like two years. It didn't even register. Like I knew it happened, you know, life had changed. A lot of things had changed in life, but I didn't even really cry about the loss of my stepfather for about a year, year or two. And it just came out of nowhere. I was doing something else. Something happened and it reminded me of him and I just broke. And so just, the complicated nature of grief and how layered it is. So it's, maybe uh, you go ahead. You can, you can kind of jump in here. Yeah, you're right. It, it is complicated because we all experience what we experience in grief in our own way. And you mentioned going through the stages of grief and the thing about that process, those stages they're not linear. You don't go one, two, three, four, five. <laughs> and sometimes you jump around and, and, and <laughs> go back through something, some yeah. part of it as you're progressing. For me, as I started thinking about having this conversation, I realized that I've experienced quite a lot of grief and loss in my life. And we talked about my sisters. Yeah. I have a convoluted family. That's what I call it. <laughs> a true Southern African-American family where your cousins are identified as brothers and sisters and then their step sisters. And yeah, so we're all we're all brothers and sisters. <laughs> all bro <laughs> right. right. I have a cousin to this day. She calls me her sister cousin. Wow. I grew up with them. And of course, among all of them, I'm the baby girl. Wow. So that gives me certain privilege. Mm. <laughs> mm, I don't know nothing about that baby girl. Yeah, I'm the oldest, so I don't know nothing about what you're talking about. <laughs> I, I get frustrated by it when I see it. <laughs> so my three sisters were with me in my house during Katrina, and all of them are now deceased. The first two passed away within three months of one another. The first suddenly, she had just turned 65, retiring from her job in Jefferson Parish School District and had not been feeling well, was getting ready to go to the doctor that next day, and she didn't wake up. And then unbeknownst to the family, my middle sister had a form of cancer that affected her brain, and within two, three months, she was gone. And then the youngest sister who's next to me, the youngest of those three, passed away maybe four years later. And so once she passed away in New Orleans, my dad came to live in Houston, my stepdad, which is the dad that I, that's daddy. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And um, he passed away a year ago, March. Mm. And so out of those experiences, 
each one impacted me differently. I'm a take charge kind of person. So with my oldest sister, I knew I needed to go and help my dad and my youngest sister. They all live together. So I went in taking care of stuff, cleaning out stuff, packing up stuff, just moving. And it didn't really hit me until after my second sister passed away. And that that made me sit down and began to process what had happened. Mm. And I realized I didn't take any time to feel through that process of loss because I kept doing. And um, even now, I remember journaling. I'm a big journal person. Mm-hmm. And I told one of my girlfriends, look, this is where those are hidden. So if you hear that I die, make sure you get there in time to get those before <laughs> anybody else does. Yeah, some stuff in there. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember journaling about my sisters and asking God, okay, who's going to be my confidant now? Wow. Who's going to be mom to me now? Because wow. those were positions that my sister, who's going to be my ride or die now? You know, that void that you feel is is there. But I don't think anything impacted me the way the loss of my stepdad did. Hmm. I literally gave myself room to grieve. And after a year and some months, I feel like my head is just processed. We have to allow room to feel what we feel. And often we don't. So for you, I mean... It was probably months before I literally cried, cried. I'm like the whole ugly cry. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that gut-wrenching yeah. cry. Yeah. And for you as a guy, and I know guys don't always connect with feelings <laughs> like that. Right. How did that show up, the the emotion that you mentioned? How did that show up for you? So, So there's more to the story that kind of may be, that may give some uh, context to maybe how that manifested in my life. So, you know, my stepfather, it, it was a sudden uh, thing where my mother had talked to him that morning. He had dialysis because he was on dialysis at the time. He had dialysis that morning. He had been complaining about kind of a headache for a couple of days. Um, they had a doctor's appointment that morning to get it looked at, to get it checked out. She said she talked to him about nine or 10 o'clock, had an appointment at 11 to go handle some stuff for her brother, who she is a a caregiver for, and um, was going to meet him at his appointment. I think around like noon. Mm -hmm. So she called me at about two o'clock and said, Sam misses appointment and he hates being late. She's like, "Uh, I called or she, I think she called to see if he had gotten there and they were like, yeah, he's not here yet. And she was like, he's not here yet. Cause she called late. Cause she was going to be late. And she was trying to make sure that she, that he, he knew that she was going to be a little late. And uh, she was like, hold up. And uh, I was like, okay, that's not like him. And she told me, she said, the Holy spirit told her come get me. Mm-hmm. So she called me and I just heard she, her voice sounded different. And she explained the situation to me. She said, I need you to ride with me back to the house. And immediately I was like, okay. And I began to kind of prepare myself like, okay, Lord, ah, uh, hmm, okay. And so 
she, you know, came by, rode with her to the house, and I was praying. I was like, she said, if his car is here, something's happened. And so as soon as we turned the corner on that street, his car was there. And she's like, okay, this ain't good. And I was like, well, mom, I said, here's the thing. You know, we kind of praying on the way over. And I was like, Lord, give me whatever I need to be what needs to be, you know, to happen in this, in this situation. Cause you know, again, I'd never had that kind of experience. So I was like, okay, as soon as we stopped, I jumped out the car, ran up to the door. Cause I was like, okay, I don't want her to be the first, if something's happened, if you know, I don't want her to be the first person, let me get in here, get to doing some stuff if I need to. And I came to the door and he was slumped over in his chair and I was like, okay. So the door was locked. I had to wait for her to get to the door. Now she was a homicide detective, police officer for a number of years. So she knows the scene when she sees it. So as soon as we walked in, she was like, mm, yeah, he's gone. And I was like, no, I said, so I went over, picked him back up, laid him back in this chair. And it was interesting because we had not been, you know, at a good place in our father son relationship at this part of the season. You know, we had always been cool. We had kind of a patch where we were just a little rocky, you know. And uh, the Lord had uh, kind of impressed upon me to make things right. And then it was like increasingly he was impressing upon me with more and more gravity. You Like, you don't have time. You need to make it right like now with a sense of urgency. And so I did. You know, we kind of talked and that kind of thing. And so we kind of were in a good place. So when I walk in and, and I, I see this experience, I went numb, actually. It's kind of like I, I just went into a mode where you got work to do. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have time to feel right now. I got, I got, we got, we got, we got to get this thing, the situation under control. So I, I lay, I pick him back up in this chair. I'll never forget the scene. I'll never forget the, the visuals. And I was talking to him and I was like, come on, big guy. Okay. We got it. You know, and I took his, his pulse. I couldn't, and my heart was beating so hard. I couldn't tell whether it was you know, from, so I was like, okay, I, I don't know if this is something I've got a pulse or not. I can't tell because my, my heart's beating so hard. My thumbs, everything's pulsing. So I, I leaned and put him back in the chair and he exhaled and uh yeah that was a moment and as you know my mother again she's she's a she's a professional she was like his eyes are fixed and she was like he's gone you know and so i was still trying to no let's just you know and she was like no chris no no you know and i was like no we gotta let's you know i'm still trying to you know maybe and she's like no chris you know no she said no that's so she said let's let's go ahead and lay him on the floor and uh, we got him, got him on the floor because she had called. She started calling the people need to be called. And she said, "Well, I'm, I'm gonna need. I can't. I, I got to handle the business. I'm gonna need you to call your siblings." <sighs> yeah. So that was that, those were hard calls, you know. And I was like, "All right, Lord, give me what I need," you know. And um, so I called each of them, and I knew. So I was trying to find a way to just not shock them into it. But it's like, hey, what's going on? How you doing? What, what you what you up to? Now I said, okay, hey, are you um, you know, are you by yourself or what you doing? You you at work? What's going? On? See if you can step away for a second. I got something I want to talk to you about. Just kind of trying to be cool about it, and um, and then of course broke the news, and everybody reacted in their own way. But each of the reactions, it was hard for me to maintain my composure. But I was trying to be strong. Because they needed something, they needed something sturdy to hold on to, you know. And so, uh, made all those calls. And um, for those who were in town, you know, they were on their way over. And um, 
Yeah, it was just a tough, it was a tough day. And so I, I just kind of, I just was numb. I think I was, it was like, um, I was kind of, I don't know, detached from it because there was so much that needed to be done. And I was like, okay, now I got to be strong for my mama. You know, and there's still work that needs to be done to kind of prepare for everything, get all the planning and stuff done. And so I'm like, mom, we good. You know, I didn't let her out of my sight. I made sure she ate, you know, mommy, you're drinking your water, you know, cause now I'm the oldest. So me, you know, so that was, that was a, that was a monster. That was a monster blow. And I didn't have time to grieve because work needed to be done. Um, and I had to be strong for everybody. So I didn't have time, right? Yeah. And, uh, pushed it down. And I think it was kind of like I was hurting and I couldn't, I couldn't find words for it. And so I would try to express what I could. But generally men, you know, we, we don't have a lot of um, experience with expressing ourselves, period. Right. It's usually the issue we have in relationships because, you know, be asking how you feeling. I'm good. I'm fine. <laughs> you know, we got a few good choice, you know, comfortable go tos. Uh, you want anything beyond that? You know, it's kind of like how, you know, women will be able to tell you that there's a difference between brown and mauve brothers. It's like, man, that's brown and brown. You know what I mean? What are we talking about? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. So right. Like, you know, hey, you know. Periwinkle, that looked like sky blue to me. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> like, hold up. So, so it's kind of the nuances. We, we're not, we're just not as usually most of us in general are not um, as savvy when it comes to like expressing and just really recognizing how we feel. But you know so, what? You shared something with me about that time and how for a period there were things you didn't remember. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I mean, you're right. I had never, I had heard that people, when they have traumatic experiences, they block out stuff and they just can't remember it. And that was the first time I really experienced like what that was. And you're right. I, there was some stuff I just could not remember for the life of me. For how long of a period of time did it you have over, that block? Yeah, it was well over a year. I'm talking a year, year and a half ish, you mm -hmm. know, where, and it's like slowly but surely things started kind of coming back. Yeah. Like I knew I'd see, I mean, I'm a detail oriented kind of person when it comes to things, the visual, I can remember where things were, what colors, what position I couldn't remember anything. It was just like, I knew it happened and I knew I was there and I knew some of the, the, the movements in terms of, you know, what we we're working on, but him, I couldn't see it. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. The, as you mentioned earlier, the nuances that grief can take one of the, phrases I've used to kind of quantify that emotion for me is the veil mm -hmm. of grief. Because for me, as I was dealing with my dad's death, it was as though I was functioning from behind a veil. It was like there was this weight that I couldn't quite put my finger on, that I couldn't shake. And it was like I carried it with me everywhere I went. Mm. And no matter how happy a situation was, that veil, that weight was still there. So even in, and this sounds weird, but even in laughter, there was still that overriding sense of loss and sadness. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree. You know, I think the veil I, that that is that is such a great description of what it felt like it covered my whole life 
I couldn't, I mean, I would laugh, but it wasn't like the laughter before. It, it was a defining event in the timeline of my life. It was like how, it was like life before and then literally like life after that happened. Yeah. You know, and I really, you know, honestly, I really became more sensitized to trauma. I had heard the word before plenty of times, but that experience sensitized me to it and its effects on people and then recognizing a lot of the causes. Like I just, I mean, I, I dove in, in terms of research and listening, there was um, Brene Brown um, yeah. is a person who uh, does a lot of work in, you know, the area of shame and vulnerability, but she kind of talks about trauma a little bit too. And um, I just started to kind of really dig in and to, to understand what I was going through because it was like, man, there really was kind of like a, I don't want to necessarily call it a cloud, but there was just like this cover, mm-hmm. this 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 uh, coating mm-hmm. on everything. Yeah, and and I think that because we keep trying to be okay, instead of just feeling what we feel, yeah, and allowing that emotion to work its way through, the weight gets even heavier, and then others don't quite understand why we're responding, why there's that lackluster response, if that's a a way to describe it. Mm -hmm. Because I didn't feel fully me. Yeah. And we're talking, that's been over, that's been over a year now. One of the things that you and I uh, talked about, we had reconnected at a preaching conference at Baylor University Truth Seminary. And you and I had a brief conversation. It was like, man, it almost felt like there was like we were in a bubble. Yeah. Like there was life happening and all the people were registering and talking around us. But like when we were kind of talking, I didn't hear anything but what you were saying. Right. It was it was an interesting experience. And we were talking about the waves of grief. Yeah. And how it just waves in. You know, so so talk about your experience, the impact of the loss and then the waves, if you you know, yeah. what that felt like for you. So much like you. I had a lot of responsibility on the front end of getting through the services. My dad has a baby sister who lives in Chicago. My Aunt Jessie, she's a firecracker. (laughs) (laughs) My, my. And so uh, I asked Aunt Jessie to come. I said, you need to give me some time. I want some time with you. And either you could come early and stay a few days after the funeral. Or you could come closer to the funeral and stay a little few days later. I said, but you need to give me some time with you. And she honored my request. But uh, I didn't think about the fact that that meant now I have an additional responsibility as I'm working through this whole process. And so in addition to Aunt Jessie, my Aunt Pearl wanted to be there for me. Mm. Now, my Aunt Pearl, <laughs> that soul sister yeah. is a whole lot of work. Because when she comes to my place, I do all the cooking. Oh she ain't my. trying to cook nothing. Oh, my. She getting up like, what's for breakfast? Wow. And this sister eats for real. Three, <laughs> me- three whole meals a day. Wow. Okay. So I didn't I, I didn't think about the fact that I'd have that responsibility. And so that meant I'm moving. I'm not feeling a whole lot of anything 
So we had a lot of family coming in town. And of course, Aunt Jessie and her two daughters who came with her were at my place. And so I'm entertaining. Mm. And then everybody else from Chicago, well, we going by Deborah. <laughs> wow. So, and, and it was fine, though. It, it was fine because I needed to move. I needed yeah. to have that distraction right right then in the immediate. Well, I don't know if I needed it, but it was. I felt like it was good for me to have. But once everybody was gone, and it started before then, it started, uh, it was just my Aunt Pearl and I at the house. And I was just agitated. And I didn't understand why things that she would say, things that she would do were agitating me so much. But it was me now settling in and my dad being gone, becoming a reality. And I was was beginning to feel that even before I could express what I was feeling. Yeah. And the waves that you talked about, I would be at work just going through a normal day. The day started real good. <laughs> it's a good day. The sun is shining. And all of a sudden, this black cloud just overshadows everything. There would be moments where I would cry, and I'm thinking, am I going to stop? Wow. Yeah. And I remember the people at work were very accommodating and very empathetic. And I'm a big crybaby anyway, but I try to be strong. I try to be strong. Mm. And um, yeah, that wasn't working. Mm. So there would be times when the tears would just come. I just have to excuse myself out of a meeting or somebody would be in my office and they'd say something that triggered something and the tears are rolling before I even realize it. And they're going, but it's okay. You got to get through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it would, and then after a period of time, there would still be waves in the sense that now I know to prepare myself for Father's Day before Father's Day gets here because, or birthdays, because mm-hmm. I remember one of my sister's birthdays coming up and I started like, I won't say I was spazzing out, but I started feeling all of this emotion and I couldn't put my finger on what it was. And then I realized, well, that's Tootsie's birthday. Yeah. You know, and and so that's another kind of the wave of yeah. grief that comes along that sometimes is unexpected and surprising. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. Number one, it's free. Number two, there's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Number three, Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and many more. Number four, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. And number five, 
is everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Start today. Thank you.